Here are a few of the top news stories from around the world on Friday of this week, taken from various news sites. Several killed, injured in bow and arrow attack in Norway. British lawmaker David Ames has died after being stabbed multiple times in a constituency meeting. At least 16 killed as explosion rocks mosque in Afghanistan's Kandahar. Man sentenced to death in China for setting his ex-wife on fire during a live stream. Anybody uncomfortable yet? <laughs> the truth of the matter is that this, have, this could have been any week, and I would have been easily able to find similar headlines to these that give us a reminder of an indisputable truth. We live in a world where sin and chaos continue to create havoc in the lives of humanity. It's easy to see evil in these headlines. But the evil is even more frightening because there isn't even order to the evil that exists. It isn't as if we can explain away these sorts of events by saying these awful things had to have happened to people who had done something to deserve it. So we're left with this uncertain existence where even we as believing, praying Christians don't know what tomorrow holds. The reality, this reality that I'm describing, is the oldest question there is. And it takes many forms. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why doesn't God prevent suffering? If God is all good, all powerful, and loves us, then why does He allow evil to exist? Or when we are in moments of personal crisis, this question takes a very simple form. Why me? Why now? Why, God? If you're honest, you've probably asked this, some form of this question. I know I have. These questions have been around since the very beginning. Philosophers have argued over the best answer to this question with some form of the explanation having to do with true love and free will. Yet even as some of these responses logically explain things pretty well, they don't really leave us with the answer we need, do they? They don't really leave us feeling better. I kind of like philosophy. I took a class in undergrad and another one in seminary. But ultimately, this question, which is typically called the problem of evil, this question is not adequately answered by philosophy. Since the beginning of time, people have tried to explain it. But today, we're going to find the answer to all of our questions. Sound good? 
It's a bold claim, but here we go. Nowhere is this question better addressed than in the biblical story of Job. Gave Charlie a pretty difficult task this morning. Hey, Charlie, just explain Job and the problem of evil to, to kids. Good job. Many biblical scholars believe that Job is the oldest book in the Bible for various reasons that we're not going to go into right now. The point is that this question that the book of Job addresses goes back to the very beginning of religious writings. This is truly remarkable if you think about it. We today, in a vastly different context are wrestling with the very same question that has existed before the time of Moses. Allow me to offer us a summary of this amazing story found in Job. The book starts out by saying, there was a man, there once was a man in the land of Uz, named, whose name was Job. There once was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. This story is set in this far-off land, which is nowhere near Israel, and it's about a man named Job, who is not a Hebrew, and there are no more specifics about the setting of this story given, which is interesting, considering we consider it one of the oldest books in our Old Testament. But this seems to be on purpose because the plot of the story is a universal plot. It's not meant to be a very specific telling of a story that only applies about this one man and his experiences. It's a general story that all of humanity can relate to on some level. This seems to be the purpose of this general telling of this story. The same questions it addresses are the same questions that we have today. Verse 1 also tells us that this man, Job, was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Of all people, Job is a man who is deserving of great blessings from God. Of anybody, this man had it together. And he gets blessings. He has a large family, as Charlie explained to us, seven sons, three daughters. He's got lots of land and crops and herds, a full life of abundance. He's such a great guy that even, even every now and then, he would go and offer sacrifices to God for his children, just in case they had sinned without him knowing about it. In fact, we are told that Job was the greatest of all the people of the East. After this description of Job as this incredibly godly man, we then get a glimpse into the heavens where God is meeting with his heavenly beings. One of them is called the accuser. And when God points out how great Job is, the accuser simply says, he's only that great because his life is so great. 
He's only that great because he hasn't experienced any suffering. Let him experience some suffering and he'll turn on you. Shockingly, God now allows the accuser to wreak havoc on Job's life. The force of how much goes wrong can't really be felt with a summary. So let me read for you these events from Job chapter 1, verses 13 to 19. One day, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid on the camels and carried them off, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people. And they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. That's a bad day. Job, in one day, loses everything he has. Uh, A bit later, as Charlie explained, Job is struck with sores all over his body, from head to toe. But Job continued to worship God. Now, before Job starts to ask the question, why, the people around him begin asking it for him. And we're going to look at a few of these people's uh, questions that they're asking, or their explanations of this question of why. But in, in what they say, in their explanations, we'll see some of the explanations we hear today. Intentionally or unintentionally. These are the attitudes that humans often have towards this big question of why do bad things happen? Why does God allow evil? First, it's his wife, who I think gets a little bit of a bad rap. Because if you think about it, except for the sores that are all over his body, she's experienced all the same tragedies that he has. But first, his wife comes to him and says, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. That's her response to this question of suffering. Curse God and die. Now, you probably won't hear many people say this like that, but in reality, it is the way many people respond to suffering. Denounce God and give up seeking after him and the life that he brings. Turn from him. Give up. I've met people like this who when suffering comes, give up. But next we meet Job's friends. 
And it's funny, at first, we get a picture of a really good way to respond when a friend is going through deep suffering. At first, they do exactly what they should have done. When they saw how much pain Job was in, we're told, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. There's a lot of wisdom here. When someone close to us has, is, is suffering, have you ever felt, I just don't know what to say? Perhaps it's because we're not really meant to speak at all. Perhaps it's because we should actually just be with the person. Often the best we can do is simply sit with someone and cry. Eventually, though, these three friends, they open their big mouths. And essentially what they say is that God is just and runs the world according to his justice. So Job, if God's just and all these awful things are happening to you, clearly there's something you're not telling us. Clearly there's some sort of secret sin that you have done, and this is your punishment. So repent of that secret sin. They're saying there's a reason for the suffering Job is experiencing, and that reason is something that Job has done. This is how it comes across when we say things like, everything happens for a reason. It's a response that people have to this day. Job insists that that's not the case. And Job is on this emotional roller coaster right now from a life that was full of abundance and blessing to having everything taken away from him and wishing he was never born, he says at times, and now being accused of sin that's caused it all to happen. That leaves him in a very dark place. Throughout the book, Job is oscillating back and forth between believing that God is just and good and then essentially accusing God of being a big mean bully. Again, when we are in moments of deep suffering, humans follow similar patterns, wanting to trust God and cling to the hope that he has for us, while also crying out, why? Why are you doing this to me? In the end, Job begs God to answer for what has happened to him. After a, a big long speech in chapter 31, verse 35, Job says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. He's even questioning, is God listening? Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. He's been challenging God. Demanding an answer for the suffering that he's experienced. It's the same question we started with. If God is good and loving and just, then how can there be evil in the world? Through all of this, God is seemingly absent. Chapters 1 and 2 talk about God and his heavenly court 
meeting with these heavenly beings. But then after that, the rest of the book is a conversation between Job and his friends. And finally, in chapter 38, we get a response. The last few chapters of the book of Job, I believe, are are some of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture. We're going to read a a portion of it, but I encourage you, I encourage you all at some point this week to read the last couple chapters in Job. Just start in chapter 38 through 42. It's only four chapters, uh, five chapters, four chapters. (laughs) Read that for yourself. It's beautiful, it's poetry. And it's God speaking. We're going to read chapter 38, verses 1 through 11. So after this long uh, absence of God, because these scriptures in, 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 these stories in Scripture were meant to be read as wholes, usually, in chunks. So imagine that you've read the whole book of Job. And you're wondering, along with Job, where is God in all of this? Again, that's another form of the same question we started with. When we see suffering, when we hear news headlines about evil things happening, oftentimes it makes us want to ask the question, where is God in all of this? Finally, in chapter 38, we get this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Before we move on, we need to say, hallelujah, the Lord answered Job. We've got the answer right here from the Lord himself. Here's the Lord's answer. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut it in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and where shall your proud waves be stopped? encourage you to read that in scripture Uh, to fit the screens. We have to take out the fact that it's poetry. You don't see the lines and how it's all put together. I encourage you to look at it for yourself this week. Much of the book of Job is written in, in in poetic form. This line of questioning from God in his answer goes on for a long time. He keeps going with these questions of who do you think you are? He starts off by saying, gird up your loins. Essentially, God's saying, get ready, Job, because here I come. You need to brace yourself. He says, I will question you and you shall declare to me. After two chapters of these questions about who created the mountain goats and who created the hippos and who did all this, was it you, Job? I didn't think so. Job then 
tries to answer a little bit in chapter 40, verse 3. It says, Then Job answered the Lord, See, I am of small account, and I shall answer you. What, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. Job's trying to interrupt God's line of questioning and say, okay, 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 I'll, I won't say anymore. But at the beginning of this, when God said, gird up your loins, he then says, you will answer me. Job doesn't get off that easy. And then God continues, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, gird up your loins like a man, I will question you and you declare to me. And starts again, with these questions. It keeps going and going and going for a long time. I didn't take the time to count how many questions God asks Job here at the end of this book, but somebody did, and I googled it, and they said 77. Now, my guess is that's probably in an English translation. I don't know what the actual number is. I just say that to tell you there's a lot of questions, and it goes on and on. And it's really cool. It touches on all these different parts of creation and stars and random animals. But none of which Job can point to himself as the answer. After this series of questions, Job finally responds again. And Job finally repents. But he doesn't repent because God has revealed this secret sin that his friends have said must have occurred. No, instead, he repents for uttering things he did not understand. Most translations say that Job then says, I despise myself and I repent. A literal translation would be, I reject myself. I'm not saying he hates who he is. He's, he's rejecting himself in some way, shape, or form. It's, it's a form of self-sacrifice. Ultimately, God does not address any of Job's specific questions. Remember, I promise you the answer to all of our questions. Even though God does not directly address any of Job's specific questions, Job is satisfied. Job has gotten the answer he needed instead of the one he desired. Job thought he wanted to know why, when in reality Job's deeper need was a longing for God's presence. The answer to all of our questions is the presence of the living God. When it comes to suffering, no philosophical answer can satisfy our longings. The book of Job doesn't offer a philosophical explanation of why bad things happen to good people because ultimately that isn't what Job needed. And ultimately that's not what we need either. God's presence, God's very presence is the answer and overcomes the need for the questions to be asked. I know some of your situations 
during part of the service, I, I looked around the room, and I can think of several situations I know of, of sufferings that you have experienced either in the very recent past or the distant past. I know some of you are experiencing a lot of pain and sorrow even now. I'm also quite confident there are many of you who are silently struggling with things that I have no clue about. And I understand the need, the desire to answer the question why. But what we really need and what our deepest inner longing is for is for the presence of God. He himself is the answer. I'm going to invite the Keys family to come back up. They're going to lead us in our closing song. This closing song is about the Holy Spirit of God. The theme throughout the song is not just about the Spirit, but it's about the Spirit's presence with us and a longing for that presence that satisfies our deepest needs, that answers our deepest questions. I invite you to make the lyrics of this song your prayer this morning. We usually sing this song, or at least the chorus of it, as a call to, call to worship at the beginning of services. I think it works well as a benediction as well. The, the bridge of this song simply says, uh, make us more aware of your presence, or something like that. That's our prayer, that God would make us aware of his presence here with us, because that's the answer to all of our questions about pain and suffering.